All right, well, it's, it's one of the great examples of Christian heroism in the 20th century. Jim Elliott, along with four of his friends and their families, missionary families, they set out with this incredible objective to share the gospel of Jesus with a hostile Indian tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. Now, these Indians that they were trying to minister, they were so brutal that other Indian tribes referred to them as savages. The name of this Indian tribe was Auka, and that's what, that's what it means in the, in the Indian dialect, savage Indians. They had a reputation of being hostile towards outsiders, but they were also merciless towards each other. Anthropologists estimate that six out of every ten deaths that occurred in the Alka Indian tribe were the result of homicide. They were, they were a rough, savage people. So Elliot and his four friends, they were well aware of the danger, and so they did everything they could to try to establish some kind of a friendly connection with the Alka Indians. And uh, one of the, one of the, the men in, in this missionary group, this team, he was, he was a great pilot, and so they were able to fly an airplane and locate where the Alka Indians were, and they were able to, to drop down gifts to them. Actually, they, they were able to lower things like salt, or, or they, they were able to drop down um, tools or different implements that they would find useful. And, and it seemed that the Alka Indians were, were favorably responding. There were, they were, they were favorable gestures, friendly gestures that were being exchanged as they would fly over. And so they decided to, these five missionaries decided to make personal contact. And their plan was to land their airplane on a large sandbar uh, on a river near where the Alka village was. And their hope was to be able to start friendships with the Alka Indians that would lead to them accepting Jesus and, and experiencing eternal life. That's, that's what they, their, their heart's desire was. Now, Elliot and his friends, they, they were well aware of the dangers of the jungle, and so they were all armed. They all had, they all had guns. But they decided that under no circumstances would they use these guns to defend themselves against the Alka Indians, the, the very people that they were there to serve. They figured, from their viewpoint, they were ready for heaven, but the Alka Indians were not. When the Alkas saw the missionaries on the sandbar, sadly, they were anything but friendly. They rushed the five men with spears, and true to their convictions, the heroic missionaries accepted death rather than kill the people that they had come to minister to. And although these men died tragically, their death was not in vain. In the following years, the widows of these men, their wives, their, their children, they eventually made contact with the Alcas. They didn't give up. They persisted. They even met some of the men who killed their husbands. Rather than being overcome by bitterness, they accepted the loss. They accepted what God allowed and continued to show God's love to these people. As a result, people from this savage tribe accepted Jesus. It can be hard to accept when bad things happen to us, when things don't go our way. It can be hard to accept that. It might even become resentful. Often we, we say things like, it's not fair. Have you ever said that before? I have. We, we can say things like, I deserve better than this. And you know what? You might actually be right. You might be telling the truth. 
But the problem is when we, when we fail to accept the experiences that God allows in our life, we will inevitably be overcome by them. There's a power in acceptance. So today, as we start this new sermon series, as we've been talking about already in this service, the, this sermon series on the story of the cross, we're going to see how to accept God's will for our lives when things don't work the way we might want them to. We're going to look at that. How is it possible that we can accept God's will for us? And as we look at this, we're going to see how we can be free to overcome, to overcome these situations that can so easily overcome us. For the next seven weeks, we're going to be in this sermon series, and we're encouraging everyone to be a part of a small group. We believe that the Christian experience is done, is intended to be done in community. And so we encourage you to, to join a small group or maybe even start a small group, and it can be very easy to do. To help facilitate this, on our website, we're posting study guides each week. So each week there's going to be a study guide based upon the sermon. So if you want to have a small group, you don't have to bring some big study with all kinds of deep theological insights. Or what, I mean, if, you can't, if you're able to and you want to, great, go for it. But if you need something to get you started, this is a study guide, and we're just encouraging people to come together and talk about the content of the sermon. Talk about what God is saying to you, and then pray together. That's it. It's really, really simple. And this study guide can help you with that. You can just download that, click on it. Um, it's there for you. So I encourage you to go to our website, medfordsda.org, and, and use that. And so that's, that begins today. You'll find the study guide for this, for this sermon. The title of the message this morning is called Heroic Acceptance. Heroic Acceptance. And before we open God's word, I'd like to just pause for a moment uh, to pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the heroic acceptance that you intend for us to have. That we would accept what you are saying to us now. That we would accept your will for our life. That we would accept your word as our sure guide, as the source of our life. May we hear you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please go with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be uh, looking at verse 39. Throughout Jesus' life, Satan worked really, really hard to prevent him from going to the cross and sacrificing himself for the salvation of humanity. He, he, did, he pulled out all the stops. He, he did everything he could. Uh, some of the examples of this, we, a, after Jesus' birth, Satan worked through the king Herod to issue this decree that all of the children in Bethlehem be slaughtered, and if Jesus' parents had not obeyed the warning message of the angel and left Bethlehem, he would have been in, his life would have been in danger. After Jesus' baptism, Satan tried to take Jesus out through temptations. He tried to get him to fall, and he brought these really intense, difficult temptations to Jesus, hoping to somehow get him to fall, even in a thought. And had he done that, he would not have been able to be the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. During Jesus' ministry, Satan tried to discredit Jesus. He tried to, to, to confuse those people who would be followers of Christ. Time after time, the religious leaders questioned Jesus' authority and tried to undermine his ministry. And now, on the night before Jesus was to be crucified here in Matthew 26, Satan realizes that this is his last chance. As it were, he had his back up against the wall. This was it. 
If he was going to be able to be victorious, this was his chance. He knew if Jesus died for us, he knew that our salvation would be secure and that his fate would be sealed. And so summoning all of the wicked power at his disposal, he works to do something very sinister to Jesus. And he does it to us a lot. He works to discourage Jesus. Already one of Jesus' disciples was on his way to betray him. Another would deny him. Jesus knew this. After three and a half years of Jesus ministering to his disciples, they still did not get it. And so Jesus is not finding a whole lot of evidence that his ministry was successful. Why go through with it if even his disciples didn't get it? Though weighed down with discouragement, Jesus overcame the greatest, most powerful temptations of Satan by doing something very simple. We find it in Matthew 26, verse 39. The Bible says, going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. When Jesus struggled to accept the will of God for his life, he fell face down on the ground and looked up to his heavenly Father. And he did something that even the weakest of us followers of Jesus can do and find victory. Jesus prayed. It's pretty simple. He prayed. If anyone had the strength to do the right thing on their own, it should have been Jesus, right? I mean, he's God. He never sinned. Yet all through Jesus' life, we, we find him turning to his Father and praying when he's calling his disciples. The night before he calls his disciples, he spends all night in prayer. Some days he would minister all day long, teaching people, healing people. He would be exhausted, yet his practice was early in the morning. He would go off and pray. And now when the fate of humanity is on the line, when the, when the climax of his earthly ministry has arrived, Jesus turns to the Father, his Father, and he prays. Prayer was not just some nice addition to Jesus' life, because he thought he should, because it would be a nice thing to tack on to his ministry. No, it was his lifeline. It was central to everything Jesus did. And here's why. Here's why we find Jesus praying so much. It's because he was awake to the reality that humanity is completely dependent on divinity. We're completely dependent upon the power of God to do what is right. Jesus was awake to that reality. And yet, strangely enough, his disciples were not. Although Jesus told them plainly they needed to look to God, watch and pray, he said. That's what he, that's what he tells the disciples here in Matthew 26, lest you enter into temptation. Jesus saw it coming. It wasn't just that, that he, he wanted them to get it by suggestion, that just by them observing the intensity on his face and, and the seriousness of his countenance and, and the earnestness of the way he spoke. It wasn't just that. He told them plainly, watch and pray. And yet, even though the disciples heard him say this, they, they didn't really hear it. It didn't sink in. They acted as if they needed to sleep more than they needed to pray in that moment. Yes, there are times when we need to sleep. Absolutely, we need rest. But in this moment, Jesus saw that their only hope was to lay hold of divine power through prayer. 
Verse 40 tells us that Jesus returned and he found them, what? What were they doing? They're asleep. And today I believe that we are in a similar place as the disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before Jesus was crucified. The greatest trials of the human race are just about upon us. They're just around the corner. And yet, how easily do I neglect to pray? Perhaps you could say the same thing for yourself. How easy it is for us to get distracted by other things. Last month, our church set aside 10 dedicated days to devote ourselves to prayer. And, and we did this, many of us did this in a, in a very um, structured way. We, we set aside an hour each evening from 6 to 7, and we got together and we prayed. Some of us got together on a Zoom meeting and, and prayed together. Others prayed over the phone uh, or, or in small groups. And for many of us, the results were eye-opening just dedicating an extra hour a day to prayer, we saw that the power of God was evident in our lives. As a a direct result of prayer, there was spiritual power to do what was right, spiritual power to, to be connected with God, a power that we didn't have before. No wonder Satan distracts us from prayer. No wonder he is so devoted to getting us to take our attention away from the source of power that is received through prayer. He gets us to be busy, so we neglect to pray. And without realizing it, we find ourselves coming to the place where where the power of God has been so squeezed out of our lives that we are trying to follow God in our own strength. It's a frustrating experience. Just like the disciples needed to wake up and pray, I need this, and as I look upon my people here, I believe we need to have a spiritual awakening. And this is only going to come through prayer. I wish I could give you some glamorous, um, you know, exciting solution, but this is what Jesus does. This is how he leads us. And as followers of Christ, this is how we wake up. We actually wake up to the importance of prayer through prayer. That's how it happens. For us to have spiritual power, prayer needs to be central to everything that we do, not just something that we tack on. The disciples, they believed in prayer. It's not like they did not pray. It's not like if you would have interviewed the disciples that night and said, hey, so do you think prayer is an important thing? They wouldn't have said, nah, we don't think so. That's, that's not what was going on. The disciples prayed. But prayer was not central to their life. There's a difference. Prayer must be central to our life for us to have the spiritual power to do what is right in these times, in our lives. Notice how Jesus prayed. Notice how he talks to his father. We we see one example. He prayed this prayer a couple of times. Um, It it is recorded here in Matthew 26. He actually prayed it three times. But in verse 39, we get an example of how Jesus talked to his father. He says, If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Listen to what Jesus is really saying here. Like, prayer is not an experience of just pretending to be spiritual in God's presence. Prayer is an experience of authentic communication. It's authentically sharing our heart's desires with God. See, some of us have the idea that 
we can't tell God everything. Like, there's some topics that are taboo. Like, if you were to really be honest with God and say what is really going on in your heart, that maybe I don't want to read the Bible, that maybe there's a particular temptation that's really calling my attention, I really want to do it. Like, to talk to God about things that are, may seem unspiritual or ungodly, for some of us that seems to be taboo. But God does not get offended. It's not like if you go to God and you tell him an honest thing about yourself and you're just transparent and, and forthright with him and just honest with him, it's not like he's going to say, whoa, I, I didn't know that was going on. Like, like, God knows what's going on in our lives. No matter how shameful it might be, God does not shame us. Instead, he hears us. He understands our heart's desire. And something very powerful happens as we talk to him about what our will is. As we bring our will to him, as we trust him with our will and with our thoughts and with our desires, we become empowered to accept his will. If you're struggling to accept the will of God, do what Jesus did. Bring your will to him. Say, this is what I want. If it's possible, please, can, can this please work out? It begins by bringing our will to him. When Jesus prayed, may this cup be taken from me, he was using an Old Testament symbolism to describe God's judgment on the wicked. I'll, I'll give you an example here. This is from Psalm 75 and verse 8. Listen to what it says here. It says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine. Listen to the language. It's a cup. Very typical Hebrew symbolic expression. And all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Here Jesus refers to, or sorry, here the Bible refers to the cup as a symbol of divine judgment. And notice who, who drinks this cup. It's, it's the wicked. That's who the cup is intended for. It refers to the consequences of sin. And whoever experiences or drinks this cup experiences the death that sin causes. Now, of course, if, if we all live long enough, we're going to experience death. We're going to die. And although this is a consequence of sin, this is not the final consequence of sin. This is not the wage of sin. The symbolism of the cup represents this final consequence of sin. Please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10 just quickly here. Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. As, as you're going there, um, here John uses this cup, this, this example of cup, this, this symbolic language to describe the fate of all of those who reject God. And the determining factor as to whether we reject or accept God in the end, the time that we're living in right now, the determining factor is this. It is worship. All throughout the Bible, God is very particular about how he is worshipped. And the question is, will we accept God's will on worship or will we not? Will we worship God according to our own desires or will we follow him when he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? It's not just going to church or not. It is setting aside the entire day to worship God as he asks us to. Whether it makes sense or not, we simply accept his will, and if we are willing to accept God's will and worship him as he outlines, then we have this experience of overcoming. But if we're not, for those who reject God's will on worship, we see 
we see the consequences here in Revelation 9, 14, sorry, verses 9 and 10. It says, A third angel followed them and said with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, this is the false system of worship, worshiping according to their own will. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too, listen to the language, will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. It's not a pretty picture, but essentially this is what the Bible is telling us. To drink the cup is to experience hell. Those people who reject God's will, they drink the cup of his wrath and they are burned. That's the experience of hell. That is the second death. And this is what Jesus accepted for the human race when he went to the cross. Contrary to what some may believe about hell, God does not use hell as a scare tactic. It is horrific. It is a consequence, but, it, but it's not a scare tactic. The idea that if you don't accept God's will, he will sustain your life to burn in the flames of hell for eternity is just not biblical. Let me give you one of the clearest examples of that. Eternal life is not something that we possess. Eternal life is something that is only given to those who believe in Jesus. The Bible says in John 3.16, whoever believes will have eternal life. So those who do not believe, those who go to hell, they therefore do not have eternal life. Hell will be horrible, absolutely, but it won't be cruel. It won't be cruel. Hell is a consequence of rejecting God's will. People will not go to hell because God is mad at them. That's not why anyone will go to hell. People will go to hell because they choose to take the cup for themselves that Jesus already took for us. That's why people will go to hell. When Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done, he knew that it would be horrific, but he also knew that the Father could be trusted. Throughout history, God has proven himself to be trustworthy, and Jesus places himself in the hands of the Father because he knew that ultimately God's will wins. Even though at the moment it might seem terrible, it might seem bitter, in the end, God's will wins. Let me put it to you this way. Suppose you happen to be friends with a world-class chef. Just suppose for a moment. You have this chef that's, you have this friend that's a world-class chef, and this chef has a reputation of creating amazing, amazing dishes, combinations of, of flavors and, and textures, and he is so innovative that the menu on his restaurant cannot keep up with all of his innovations. There's, there's always things that he is capable of that are not reflected on the menu. So one day you have the chance to go to your friend's restaurant to have a good meal, but when you're handed the menu and asked for your order, what would happen what would happen if instead of picking something on the menu, if instead of saying, this is what I want, what would happen if you were to say, you know what? Just have the chef surprise me. Just surprise me. I mean, what would you lose? Keep in mind that the chef, your friend, he knows your likes and your dislikes. 
He knows those foods that appeal to you and those foods that you would rather avoid. And if you have a friend like this who is a master chef who specializes in food, how could you lose by letting him decide what you're going to have for dinner? How could you lose? God came to this earth in the person of Jesus to give us abundant life, a spiritual feast. And although his ways might seem bitter at times, if we trust God's will, one day we will sit with him at his table and we'll enjoy a banquet together. The idea of acceptance may seem to many to be defeat. Like, if I, if I just accept what's happening to me in my life, if I just accept the way I'm being treated, if I just accept my circumstance, it almost seems like an admission of defeat. But when we accept God's will and what he allows for us, we can never lose. The story of the cross shows us the power of acceptance. That's what Jesus did. He brought his will to God. He says, yet, yeah, nevertheless, not, as, not what I want, not my will, but your will be done. It was a prayer of acceptance. When Jesus made this prayer, when he says, not my will, but your will be done, something very significant happened. He overcame the greatest temptations that Satan was able to send his way. That's what happens when we accept. We overcome. Today, this is how God's people, you and I, how we overcome evil also. It's through acceptance. We overcome by accepting God's will And this whole process begins by trusting God with our will. Tell him what you think. Tell him what is honestly going on in your life. No honest expression with God is taboo. Know that he cares about your temptations. He cares to hear about your struggles, about your desires. Trust him with these things and let him surprise you. Let him surprise you with his perfect will for your life. Shortly before Jim Elliott died, he penned these words in his journal. This is what he says. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He gave his life, what he could not keep, to gain eternal life. He accepted. He accepted God's plan for his life. We will never win by fighting for our will. We will never win that which our hearts desires by fighting for our will. Getting upset, getting resentful, holding on to bitterness, we'll never win. But when we heroically accept God's will, we can never lose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, for the grace and for the power for the willingness to accept your will. God, open our eyes to this reality that your will is always victorious. And just like Jesus, though it might be bitter in the moment, may we hold fast to your plan for us, knowing that you know what is best for us, knowing that you care for us, knowing that you have our best interests at heart. May we heroically accept your will today. In Jesus' name.